Well, good morning again. Please grab your Bibles with me and turn to Colossians, New Testament letter of Colossians. Thankful to be preaching this morning on divine forgiveness. That is the forgiveness that God gives to those he chooses to save and reconcile to himself. In our English Bibles, there is approximately 130 references to some form of the word of forgiveness or forgive. The vast majority of occurrences reference God forgiving his people or individuals. Only about 12 passages in all of Scripture deal with forgiveness that we are commanded to practice as a spiritual discipline with each other. That means that God's Word focuses more, far more on His forgiveness of guilty sinners than our forgiveness of each other. And for this reason, before I teach on the spiritual discipline of, spirit, of forgiveness that we are to practice, I want to take some time this morning uh, to preach on and celebrate God's forgiveness of His elect people. To get started, let me just share with you a simple definition of forgiveness. In its simplest form, forgiveness is the act of erasing or pardoning debt that is owed. It is to release the debtor from their obligation to pay the debt that they have once owed. The party who holds the debt has the right and the freedom to forgive the indebted, the one indebted to them. But that's not our focus, as we want to dig into what does forgiveness look like when it's relational, when it's between two people, and specifically this morning, what does it look like between God and his individual people. To do this, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, where Paul is writing to the believers in the church of Colossae, and says this in chapter 2, verse 13 through 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God. To dive into our study on divine forgiveness this morning, let's consider a definition to help us along. Divine forgiveness is a commitment by God to graciously pardon those individuals He has chosen for redemption, who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus so that they are reconciled to God, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences that may arise from our sin. To begin to dig into this definition of divine forgiveness, let's consider our sinful debt and God's grace Amazing grace. By looking at Ephesians, the famous chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
the reality of our sin meant we followed the devil and the passions of the flesh instead of honoring God. The righteous result of this was that we deserved God's wrath due our sin and separation from the holy God. We continue Ephesians 2, 4-5. through But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God, consider our damned reality, our dark and enslaved reality and sin following the devil, the course of this world, the desires of the flesh. But God, praise God for these words. Church, we were hopeless. We were lost. We were enslaved and deserving of God's wrath. But God intervened in grace and love and He made us alive together with Christ and saved us. See with me that forgiveness from God is a necessary and essential part of our redemption. For the holy God cannot have unity or community with those who are in sin and deserving His wrath. First, understand that God was not obligated in any way to save us or forgive us. And we were not deserving of Christ's atonement on our behalf or God's forgiveness. And that is why it's called amazing grace. Never forget If God were obligated to be gracious, grace would no longer be grace. Salvation then would be based on some amount of human merit rather than on grace alone. To add anything to grace alone is to deny grace alone. Praise God for His amazing grace to forgive many undeserving sinners like me and many of you. Now turn back with me to Colossians and let's see how Paul speaks of God's forgiveness to us. We'll return to that chapter 2 passage in a moment, but first look with me at chapter 1. Colossians 1 verse 13. Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom... We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Christ, in whom we have redemption. When talking about the work of Christ on behalf of the elect, redemption is always to be understood in the strict sense of deliverance by ransom. A ransom is a payment demanded or paid for the release of a prisoner. Christ paid our debt. Those whom God gives saving faith, those whom confess their sin and trust in Jesus, are forgiven their sin. This is the power and the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now flip to chapter 2, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Let me read this to you again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He forgave us all our sins. That means the worst of what you've done or thought. That means the most grotesque, the most despicable, the most wretched, the most selfish thing you ever did is forgiven. And everything else you ever will do is forgiven. This is not flippant. This is not easy. Never forget the high price that Jesus paid so that you could be forgiven of all your sins. God the Son Jesus Christ is eternally perfect and holy. And the fact that He willingly took on flesh, lived a perfect and holy life, meant that His blood sacrifice in the place of the elect is big enough, holy enough, worthy enough, not just to cover your past sins, but your present sins and all of your future sins. If you think, That the sin that you committed or commit is too big to be forgiven. You need to realize that's not a proclamation of the grossness of your sin. But it's an indictment on the power of Christ to be able to cover your sins. Don't do that. It is flat out wrong. To believe that you who are in Christ but somehow you're not fully forgiven. That cannot be. It is false to believe or say such a thing because it flat out denies God's God's clear written word. If this has been your view, that you have Christ, you are saved, but you are not forgiven of all of your sin, repent of that false belief. Repent of that lie. And trust in Jesus alone. And know that you are forgiven. Another layer Scripture gives us to see God's forgiveness for us that is sweet is that he, it says He will remember our sins no more. Jeremiah 31, 34 For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isaiah 43, 25 I, I am He who blots out your transgressions 
for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, we need to do some some business in light of all of Scripture with this. God is omniscient, meaning He doesn't have any limitations in His knowledge. Okay? That means this language and Him not remembering is not literal. Right? God can't not remember. He's omniscient. Knows all things. But what this is teaching us is something very important about His forgiveness for His people. And that is that God doesn't forget our sins literally, but what is conveyed is a judicial and covenantal promise of God to not punish us on the basis of those sins. To not hold them against us in any way. This is what is meant by Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God's forgiveness for those he has chosen to save by his grace doesn't mean he erases our sin from his memory. It means that he doesn't have wrath against us for that sin. This is amazing and cause for high praise, church. Amen. Really think about the ramifications of this for our life now and forever. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, you are absolutely, fundamentally, fundamentally, you must understand that in Christ you are forgiven by God. This means nothing stands between you and Him any longer. You are able to be reconciled to Him now and forever. This cannot be undone. For it is Christ who finished His glorious work of redemption on the cross on your behalf. This is truly good news. Look at the definition again. Divine forgiveness is a commitment by God to graciously pardon those individuals He has chosen for redemption who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus so that they are reconciled to God, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences that may arise from our sin. Know that divine forgiveness is a commitment by God, a promise that He will not break. Know that divine forgiveness is absolutely gracious, that He pardons any of us who are guilty in our sin, that He pardons us from what we deserve, pardons us from His righteous wrath. See the grace of that. He does this because of Christ's work on our behalf and not because of our repentance or because of our performance, but because of Him. In God's sovereignty to save us, He gives us a new heart 
a spiritual awakening. Eyes to see and ears to hear. And then what does He cause in us? Repentance and belief. In this we see the wickedness of our sin and we confess it as as sin. And we turn from it and we turn to trust in Jesus alone. For our relationship with God to be reconciled, we must confess our sin and turn from our sin to honor Jesus. The reality is, God doesn't just forgive anyone. And He surely doesn't forgive everyone. No, He forgives those whom He gives new birth and saving faith. Those who repent and believe in Jesus see that our confession and repentance is a critical part of His gracious work to save us and to make us His. Peter spoke to this well in, a multi- multiple, in multiple places. In his sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2.38, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In his preaching in Solomon's portico, in Acts 3.19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Also, in his second letter to the elect exiles in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Speaking to his elect. John also made this clear in our very letter we're studying on Sundays, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are here today, and you are not saved, understand that you stand guilty for your sin, and you therefore stand against God, and cannot be reconciled to God, but instead you deserve His righteous wrath, judgment, do all your sin, earning you eternity away from him in hell. I stand before you worried for some of you because you have no sense of urgency. No sense of how temporary this life is. How serious your sinful guilt is before the Holy God. When you look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you need to realize that either Jesus died for you and suffered and rose for you, or you will die and suffer for eternity and never rise. I promise this is the truth of God's Word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe into Him? Do you trust everything you have to Jesus? No longer are you the Lord of your life, but He is. If so, you will not perish, but have eternal life. The flip side is if you don't trust your life and build your life on Him alone, You are still in your sin, and you will perish. I pray that not one would leave here today as enemies of God.
The Bible is clear. God must regenerate your heart and give you ears to hear this good news. And so if you are hearing it today, the Bible is clear that your response will be repentance of sin and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. This is my prayer for many of you, including many of you who are younger, who have been surrounded by these truths, and yet for some reason you continue to be light with these things. You continue to lean into other things and call them more important. God gave Jesus perfect life to be tortured, to be murdered, in your place so that you could be forgiven of all your sin. And then He rose from the grave so that you could rise to the newness of life. This is the symbolism we see in baptism. So that you could know what real joy is. So that you could finally build your life on the rock and no longer on sinking sand. Friends, there is no hope apart from the cross of Jesus. Your sins are real. God's wrath is real. Hell is real. And so is the forgiveness of sin through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. If God is showing you the beauty of His grace to send His only Son who died in the place of undeserving sinners like you, and you want to be forgiven of your sin, and you want to know God and submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus for the rest of your days, then confess your sins to God and trust your life to Him and be saved. Know that this salvation is not built on you saying all the exact right words. It's not built on your performance. It's built on a childlike faith to submit your life to God and serve Him all of your days. If you have repented and trusted your life to Jesus, then know and never forget that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? It's what we celebrate this morning. One last needed clarity to understand that we see in our definition of divine forgiveness, and that is, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences that may arise from our sin, this side of heaven, we will still face and have to work through many of the consequences that our, our sin causes. For example, if you got drunk and drove your car and physically injured someone, that person may have the physical consequences of that accident the rest of their lives. That person might be you. You likely will have a jail sentence to serve for the law you broke and the harm you caused. I watched this week a sobering moment in a courtroom of an 18-year-old young man who was sentenced for street racing, his buddies. A playful moment on the streets behind the wheel whereby he killed a mother and her daughter. This young man at 18 the minimum sentence for such a crime was 18 years. The maximum 30. 
There was opportunity to try him as a youth for when it happened, the judge denied that and gave him 24 years in prison. That means that young man will be my age before he starts living his life outside of jail. And I just sat there and thought about all that the Lord has done through me from 18 until now. Pray with me for this young man's salvation. The work of God to save him and bring eternal purposes to his days. We can be forgiven and still suffer real and lifelong consequences for our sin. A very powerful example that we see in Holy Scripture is when God uses the prophet Nathan to confront David. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see these details. It is here we see that King David realized the magnitude of his sin and that he was truly repentant. Nathan told David that God would forgive him for his sin. 2 Samuel 12, 13. However, there would still be consequences that David would face in his future life and family because of what happened. Nathan told David that there would be the consequence of violence in his family for his sin. Let me read it to you, 2 Samuel 12, 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. We see these consequences unfold in some of the following ways. The baby that was conceived by David in Bathsheba would die. 2 Samuel 12, 14. His son Amnon would violently rape David's daughter Tamar. 2 Samuel 13. Another son, Absalom, would kill Amnon, murder him. 2 Samuel 13. This is a powerful example from an old covenantal situation that was different back then, but the fact still remains that our sin does have earthly consequences. So yes, we are fully forgiven of all of our sin, but in God's perfect righteousness, He still carries out His will for our lives on earth until He takes us home. And His providential decree is that there are many times by which there will be real and lasting consequences for our sin in this life. When God carries out His providential will and loving discipline, in this way, we need to be careful not to count it as His wrath for our sin. For Christ has paid for all His wrath due our sin. Instead, we see His purpose at work in His creation and often His discipline for those He loves. Consider the words of Hebrews 12, 3-11. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives." 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have have participated, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those whom have been trained by it. Church, we see this in our parenting of our own children, do we not? When our child sinfully ruins something we own, you may forgive them not having to pay for its replacement. And so we can reconcile the relationship. But that doesn't mean discipline is not in order for the child to be trained by. So our sin often has earthly consequences as well. Now also under this portion of our definition, God's commitment does not eliminate all consequences that may arise from our sin. We should also realize that it is God's design for our personal experience of eternity to be conditioned on how we navigate this life. Not just temporal consequences, but consequences for eternity. What is meant by that? Hear me closely. While all Christians are truly and fully forgiven of their sin guilt, and all Christians, true Christians, will fully enjoy eternal life in the new creation, God's forgiveness for us does not mean we all experience that eternal life the exact same way. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Bible is clear to teach here and in other places that God rewards those who are good stewards of the faith and the life God entrusted to us here and now. Therefore, those who commit sin after being saved Forgive, are forgiven and reconciled can affect the way our eternity is. Church, don't take this too far. Understand clearly that every saved child of God will experience eternal life with God and have the fullness of joy. There will be no coveting or sinful comparison in eternity. Praise God. All believers will be in complete joy with Christ. But in a mysterious and glorious way, we will have different lots. Perhaps this analogy is helpful to understand this point. Not everyone's cup will be the same size. But everyone's cup will be full in Christ. Amen? Eternal life with Jesus will mean the fullness of joy, every spiritual blessing we will have, and no envy or coveting what others have in comparison. The point is to clarify all of this, is to see that divine forgiveness does not mean God is indifferent in how we live in the here and now. Divine forgiveness does not mean God gives everyone the exact same lot forever. 
there still will be consequences to the rewards we receive or not based on how we live. We are all still responsible to God in all the things He's entrusted to us. To be good stewards of all that He puts before us every day under the sun. God's ways are high and above us, church. Let us praise Him in humility, for He is gracious, forgiving, and just. One last time, divine forgiveness is a commitment, my God, to graciously pardon those individuals He has chosen for redemption, who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus so that they are reconciled to God. Although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences that may arise from our sin. If you belong to Christ, you must see rightly and fully that you are forgiven and you will enjoy eternal life with King Jesus forever. Glory to God. Amen? With this mighty truth in hand, I want us to consider some further application this morning in two very critical areas. Two needed clarities about divine forgiveness that many Christians sadly misunderstand. And in doing so, we pervert the gospel. And so I pray that if you've had misunderstanding in these ways, there's confession and repentance of that, and walk in the newness of biblical understanding, and all the good of what that brings ahead for you. Listen carefully, church. The secular therapeutic influence on society when it comes to an unbiblical understanding of forgiveness is too often to counsel people that they need to, number one, forgive themselves, or even to forgive God in order to be healed or overcome their guilt for something that they have done or hurt for something that was done to them. Let's take some time this morning to address both of these false beliefs and practices. Number one, if you are in Christ, you don't need to forgive yourself. You are forgiven. problem with the idea or the claim that you need to forgive yourself is that it is not a biblical teaching, but rather a worldly invention. It may feel or sound helpful, but it is not. What is certainly true and biblical is that you need to hold Something against yourself. I'm sorry. I read it. I knew I read it wrong. It didn't sound right. What is certainly true and biblical is that you need to not hold something against yourself that Christ has paid for, something that God no longer holds against you. Christian, you are not living out your gospel identity if you continue to hold against yourself sins that God has forgiven you for. You cannot have a higher standard or greater justice than God has for you. God's standard and justice 
have been perfectly and finally met in the atonement of Jesus on your behalf. You belittle the work of Christ when you think or proclaim that you need to take additional steps to forgive yourself by adding something to the reality that you are forgiven. You declare that Jesus did not pay for it. God's forgiveness is not enough so that you must continue to hold yourself in some kind of contempt or pay some kind of penance or experience some kind of unhealthy guilt or remorse for it. This is a lie. This is not the gospel, and it's not the gospel at work in you. To embrace this line of thinking is to embrace another gospel. And as Paul said clearly, there is no other. R.C. Sproul once famously said it well, If God says, I forgive you, you are forgiven no matter how you feel. And to refuse that forgiveness is an act of arrogance. Now for some of you, this is a big change in the way you've been taught to think about the things you've done wrong that you've held against yourself. You may have put on a worldly approach to this. Maybe you even have found a level of comfort in the secular practice of forgiving yourself. And now you feel the weight or concern by this biblical clarity. So hear my pastoral heart for you, my love for you, when I say that this teaching, God's good word, is for your good. Why? Because it's better to know and to rest in the gospel truth than in the ideas of the world. It is better to know and rest in the true and full forgiveness of God than the ideas of the world. It is better to run to God when you are feeling guilt and despair than it is to run to the schemes of a secular society. Church, there is no comparison. Let me ask you today to be honest to yourself. Are you burdened? Are you feeling guilty? Are you feeling dirty? This is what Jesus came to save you from. See with me that Jesus took on your burden, your guilt, your filth, so that you can have forgiveness. The forgiveness of God forever and no longer carry it. I pray that you let the gospel go to work in relieving your burden of guilt. To to rejoice in Jesus is to rejoice in the fact that He bears your burdens and you need carry them no longer, Christian. Child of God, when you have the gospel in correct view, you are simultaneously relieved by the fact that Jesus' yoke is light and that however you share in the sufferings of this life, you identify with Christ your Savior who suffered for you so that you could be forgiven and freed. Remember, To not hold something against yourself that Christ has paid for. Something that God doesn't hold against you. 
There is life-changing good news in the sufficient, complete forgiveness of God. Don't downplay this or add self-help ideas or works to it. Know and experience God's forgiveness and rest in Him. And know a reality of the gospel at work in your life that is so, so good. The second false practice to clarify is you do not ever need to forgive God. For God never sins and cannot be in your debt. For some, this clarity is needed because they've heard otherwise or believe plainly that there are things they need to forgive God for. For others of you, it maybe isn't so plain or a bold declaration that you hold of this idea. But maybe for some, it's the possibility of the feeling that there's something looming in the flesh, maybe ready to pop up, disguised as something else, whereby you might feel the need to hold God in contempt. To the second group, I want to bring this clarity. We know that God is the sovereign one, church. That He is the first cause of all things. That only that which He ordains comes about. And knowing this truth about God may lead fallible men and women, boys or girls, to resent God for the things we experience. For some, maybe... It is terrible abuse as a child. Maybe a parent or friend who abandoned you. Maybe the death of a dearly loved one. Maybe a recent health or mental health struggle. Maybe a lifetime of hardship. Maybe not getting the job you worked so hard for or losing your job unjustly. Maybe a million other things that have come upon you and caused you real pain and sinful bitterness. It is possible that even a well-studied Christian, long-time Christian, a Christian leader, can fall into a mindset of bitterness towards God for such things. In that, we can think or feel that God has wronged us And if that were true, then forgiveness would be in order. But God makes no error. He does nothing wrong. You don't ever need to forgive God. For God never sins. And cannot be in your debt. Christian, while God's sovereign plan for each of us on this earth isn't always easy, it is good for us. God is always perfect and good. Psalm 145, 17, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind 
in all his works. Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Psalm 25, 10, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Yet in our flesh, we may fall into a sinful place in our time on this broken earth. This should not be, and we must be quick to repent. But since it may happen, we should acknowledge it in this lesson. Let me me show you where the Lord has blessed us. In the good work of His sovereign hand, in the great suffering of a brother. Job. The latter portions of the book of Job, we can see that Job began to think and feel from his flesh. As you know, incredibly hard and life-changing circumstances and loss and suffering came to Job at the hand of Satan. His lifelong career, flattened, destroyed, burned. His children, beloved children, killed. Stricken with terrible disease, pain. Life-changing circumstances and loss and suffering came to Job at the hand of Satan, but ultimately by the sovereignty of God. Things so horrible that most people could only assume to truly relate. We eventually see that Job turned to bitterness towards God and questioning God. Job knew that God is the sovereign one, and what Job experienced was Extreme hardship. So he essentially fell prey to the idea that God wronged him. God wants us to learn from Job's folly in this, so he includes it in Holy Scripture. We need to take the harsh and humbling rebuke that God gave Job and use it for fuel for ourselves to not fall prey to our flesh in the midst of incredibly hard times. You... Do not ever need to forgive God, for God never sins and cannot be in your debt. After Job's bitterness and complaining against God was put forth, God gave him a lengthy declaration. Here's just a portion of it. Many of you here at Disciples know it well, for it's much of a song that we love to sing. Job 38, 1-13, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On that 
On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut in the seas with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it may take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Later in chapter 40, verse 7 through 14, the Lord's rebuke continues, Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You will make known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Close yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase Him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring Him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. In light of God's divine rebuke and truth, Job rightly realizes his fault in questioning and his sinful bitterness towards God. In responds in Job 42, verse 1 through 6, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. Things I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Brothers and sisters, God put this in Scripture to humble us too. To help us not fall into thinking God needs to be forgiven for His will and deeds. Learn well from this, church. Store this in your hearts for when your flesh is being tempted to be bitter at God's good providence. We must always think of God rightly. 1 John 1.5, we saw recently, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Amen? God is holy, which means God is distinct, separate, in another class by Himself. He's set apart. He's superior to creation in every way and above all. He is morally pure without any sin, and He is holy in revelation, in relation to every aspect of His nature and character. Purity and the sum of all moral excellence are found in Him. Words about the holiness of God from the Word of Truth Catechism. So to say or think anything created needs to forgive God is to completely not understand who God is, 
and is to sinfully put yourself in the position of God and to put him in your debt. Romans 9, 20-23, Paul brings rebuke. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? The Creator does not exist for the glory of the creation, but the creation exists for the glory of the Creator. Amen? Romans 11, 33-36, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How unscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen church the holiness of god is not only the reason why we never need to forgive him but it is the very core reason why we who are conceived in sin spent a lifetime committing sin falling short of the glory of god and His holy standard need to be forgiven. For only when we are truly and fully forgiven are we able to be reconciled to God now and forever. What good news it is that God forgives us all our sin. That He made a way for us to be forgiven. May we not only repent and trust in Jesus alone to be forgiven and reconciled to God, but may we live a life of biblical forgiveness of others as God has ordained uh, to be a bright testimony of the gospel and much of the very purpose for our days on earth. I am beyond excited to teach Wednesday night on the spiritual discipline of relational forgiveness at our midweek gathering. We must have a growing and right understanding of God's call on us to forgive so that we do this thing that God uses so powerfully to put the gospel on display. Please make it a priority to join us. I'm confident you will grow in your understanding and hopefully as a result, your practice of it. By God's grace and for God's glory. Amen. Pray with me. For my closing prayer, I want to read portions of Psalm 32 this morning as we prepare to celebrate God and His gracious forgiveness of us. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you, 
I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Because of Christ we pray. Amen.